welcome back. Today what we're going to talk about is Sphere 3 of Dante's Paradiso, um, the Sphere of Venus, Cantos 8 and 9. And so just a few preliminaries before we get rolling today. This is Electron Venus. Recall that this is the first third of heaven. Heaven or paradise or the paradiso for Dante is split into three thirds. The first third were the moon, Mercury, and Venus, which means that just as the entire work, the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso is split, is one split into three, so is heaven one which is split into three as well. And so the first three spheres of heaven, we all know, were those that were marred slightly by sin. So just as the three theological virtues are the virtues representative of each of the first three spheres, faith for those inconstant in the moon, hope for those ambitious in Mercury, and love or charity for those in Venus, we know also that they were obscured slightly by sin, inconstancy or in or seeming sin, inconstancy in the moon, over-consideration for that which is worldly at the expense of that which is speculative in Mercury, and of course lust on um, in Venus. And so here are the characters that we are going to meet. We're meeting a guy named Charles Martel. We're going to see a major argument he's going to make today about where is it that human corruption comes from? Does it come from the stars? Does it come from God? Does it come from matter? Does it come from the mixture of matter and form, as Aristotle would say? Or does it come from human decisions? Does he agree with Brunetto Latini, who says that if you follow your star, you are sure to reach your glorious harbor? Or does he disagree? We'll determine that today. We'll also see Cunizza del Romano, who is literally described by one scholar I read as a living legend from Florence, often because of her lascivious liaisons. Foco de Marseille we'll talk about, who is a poet like Dante. And we'll just touch on, because we already talked about her yesterday, Rahab the prostitute. In fact, one of the major questions that we're going to ask today that I want you to be able to answer by the end of today is this. In what way is Rahab an allegory for the medieval Catholic Church? And here's one hint. She seems at first to be something like a prostitute, like a corrupted person or institution, if you look at this symbolically. But she reveals who she really is or what her faith really is through her actions. So that's my little small hint. Here are the other concepts and questions we're going to go over today. Earth's shadow in the first three spheres. Dante will make a point that there is a... There is an idea in astronomy, and I'll show you a diagram for this, that if a light source like the sun is behind the, the earth as it is a sphere, it creates a conical shadow. I say conical because it's a cone, not a triangle, because it exists within three-dimensional space, not two-dimensional space. And because of the sun being behind the earth, Dante believes that the first three spheres of heaven are actually covered by shadow. Now, something interesting from, uh, uh, there's a scholar on Dante worlds, who says this actually doesn't make sense even according to Dante's reasoning because he believed that the Sun, Mercury, and Venus all traveled around the same speed and were always close to each other. If they were always close to each other, then the Sun could never be behind the Earth in order to cast its shadow on the other two spheres. That said, this is what Dante seems to believe. Other questions. How does the sweet seed produce something so bitter? That question basically refers to both humans 
human nature, and, well, let's add a third bit, Florence. How is it that if humans are made so good, they get so bad? Because Florence does not seem very much like a Garden of Eden. It seems like a den of thieves, malicious, avaricious, envious individuals. So if the soul is made so pure and good by such a pure and good being like God, how is it that so much evil exists in this world? And that's what he's going to try and answer to us. Sub-questions. Is it better to be a citizen of a city or not? I'll just tell you this. Dante just straight up, straight up says in one line, yes, that's obvious. That's the answer. Uh, that's an Aristotelian question. Would you prefer to live outside the pack or not? And it's like, well, a very interesting question. There is a, there is a, a, um, a notion given by Carl Jung, a Swiss psychotherapist from the 20th century, that even if you are a hermit, you define yourself against your people. And so you are never truly free of them, even if you leave them. And I would use as evidence for this, the movie The Grinch. Who does he hate? The Who's. Who is he exiled from? The Who's. I would use as evidence for this also, whom, who you have been reading all year. Dante, because even though he is exiled by Florence, who is he always thinking about disparaging and writing about? Florence, right. In fact, we'll see it today. Next question, could there be a society without differentiation of labor? It seems like differentiation of labor exists precisely in order to have a society and to have more goods and more services in a safer place. E, why are some people ill-suited to their professions or stations in life? And the last question is the first question I ask, how is Rahab an allegory for the church? All right, let's jump into some simple stuff first. All right, Charles Martel, who is he? Well, he was the son and would-be emperor or king of Charles II of Anjou. Remember that Charles II of Anjou was the king of Naples, Hungary, and Provence. Provence is where all these Provencal poets come from. In fact, the poet we're about to meet, named Foco de Marseille, is one of those Provence poets. Sorry, this thing is taking some time. It wants to die, I think. All right, that's my wand I'm talking about. And so in any case, Charles Martel, who supposedly would have been, or by Dante's thought, would have been a much better ruler than either his brother or his father, died at 24, and he spends uh, most of Canto 8, I think he starts at line 31 and goes all the way to 9, 6, um, talking about uh, predestination, humans, and how it is that humans go from bad to worse or good to bad. He talks about providence and its role versus heredity. And even though he only knew Dante in, in life for a short time, there is a claim by one scholar I was reading, again, a Dante World's one, that on line 37, I couldn't quite see this, so I'll have to look closer, that he actually makes a reference to one of Dante's poems, possibly one of his sonnets. And so one thing interesting about this is that Venus, obviously the sphere of love or affection, in this sphere, we see two people who have great admiration or affection for each other, further um, developing the theme of the section. All right, good, good, good. We're going to keep moving forward. We can show this later. So the second person we'll meet is named Kunitsa. You're going to start to understand the theme in a slightly deeper way as we get into her in Foco. She's very, very, very famous for having several liaisons, including the poet 
who seemed like a lion in purgatory, named Sordello from Purgatory. She was known to have been married to four husbands, and as you can imagine, this made her a living legend as described during Dante's day. And so, very interesting. As we hear the story of Kunitsa, we come to understand that she must have been somebody who really was in love with love, who really wanted to express herself. It seems a bit because of her many liaisons, reminding us of a bit of Francesca, that she did give in to lust a bit. But you might ask, why is she unlike Francesca in paradise in heaven here? And the idea seems to be this, that though she was given to bouts of lust by her nature, that she was restrained enough still through her acts to show her true faith. That even though she was lustful, her lustful nature did not take away from the good acts she did in her life. In fact, I just want to read this to you really quickly so you understand who she is. You're not writing this, so don't worry. And this is taken directly from that resource, Dante World. Conita da Romano. Listen closely to this because this is quite the story. And if you can remember some of these lurid details, you have some funny stories to tell people. Who identifies herself as one who lived under the powerful influence of Venus. She embodies the more popular conception of a loving individual. Married for political advantage to a Guelph leader from Verona, she was also the lover for several years of the troubadour poet Sordello. Later, Canisa had a love affair with the knight Enrico da Bovio, with whom she traveled extensively. After Enrico was killed in a battle between her, bubble, her brothers, Alberico and Etzelino, Canisa married, at Etzelino's bidding, a certain count, I Mario. Legend has it that following the Count's death, she married a nobleman from Verona. And later, after his death, her brother, Etzelino's astrologer from Padua. She'd been married quite a few times. She seems to like love. The point is, at least according to this scholar, as one of the early commentators puts it, Canizzo knew love during each stage of her life. And this, she makes clear to Dante, is nothing to regret now that she enjoys the blessedness of heaven. So that's a very interesting point. And let's go on here. In fact, Kunitsa's moral compass appears to be well-adjusted as she laments the devastation wrought by her violent brother, Etzelino, who is, of course, punished amongst the murderers in hell, emphasizes the importance of earning glory through excellence. That's something we still care about. And decries the corruption and violence that plague uh, the northeastern region of Italy. And so, very interesting person. So just to reiterate... She had very, several very famous liaisons, including the knight, a count, and Sordello. She was married to the four husbands, not Sordello, but several of those other men. And she seems to embody the connection between lust and affection, that even though, obviously, she acted in a way that might be defined as lustful, her values were in the right place. Her lust did not get in the way of her doing good things. Very much opposite from Francesco, right? It was because of Francesca's lust, that she cheated on her husband, which led to her husband then finding out and killing both her and her lover, which led to both her and her lover dying, and they went down to hell, and led to her, her husband, her lover's brother, being sent down actually to one of the deepest circles of hell through traitor, being a traitor to his family. And so, whereas the one person acted lustfully, fewer times, it had a greater effect on her life, whereas this woman seems to have integrated her lust into her life and had less of a deleterious effect. So it's almost as if, 
And this is, uh, this is something that if you ever get into finance will help you. It's not about the quantity, but the quality of your actions. What is the effect of your actions rather than just the intent? Dante is here talking about what is the outcome. And that is how you determine how bad or good a thing is. That theme will be continued as we get to Charles Martel. Okay, quickly about Folco de Marseille. We're just quickly going through these. The next person we meet in Venus is in here for a less corporeal or sensual reason. He was Folco, writer of love poems. So this recalls to us Arno Daniel as well as Guido Guinazelli. We finally find a love poet in heaven. And he was a writer of love poems. And later he would become a bishop of Toulouse. And that is a small hint to what we want to think of Rahab as and how we are going to look at the church after the sphere of love. Because on the one hand, he was one given over to lasciviousness and licentiousness as a young person, one given to being lurid or lustful. And yet in an older state, when he had more perspective on life, he comes to become a bishop. It is almost as if he were impure and he purified himself, or he had an impure sort of love, a lustful sort of love marred with the physical, and it became later a more abstract or theologically based love. He also, and just to mention this, he is described as having an amorous desire that he puts into his poetry even greater than Dido. Dido, of course, is the person who swore never to cheat on her dead husband, Sicaius, but the second Aeneas came through, Cupid shot her with an arrow, and she gave up on that when Hera and Venus conspired uh, to have her be alone in a cave with Aeneas. Apparently, her desire overwhelmed her principles in that moment. At least that's how Dante reads the situation. And, well, Folco is just the same sort of person she is. He has just the same sorts of desires. And yet, even though he has the same nature and the same feelings, the outcome of his decisions is very different. Again, it does not seem to be sinful for Dante just to have a feeling or a thought or a perception. It seems to be the action and the effect of one's action that determines just how bad or corrupt or sinful one's deed or will on which one's deed is based is. Good, 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 good. And so each of these people, though very much lustful and amorous, showed their true faith through their works or actions. Very interesting. Okay, big question here. So we talked about this quite a bit yesterday, and I mentioned this in general uh, today, and we're going to go quickly through it. How is it that the Earth's shadow obscures the first three spheres? Well, according to Ptolemy, and he is the one who has the geocentric worldview from his work called the Almagest, that if you go to St. John's, you'll get a chance to read. Uh, he had this notion that the Earth casts a shadow with sun behind it, something like 500 or 671,000 miles. And according to then estimates in medieval astro astrology and astronomy, they were the same science at that time, Venus could at any one point be something like 500,000 miles away to 3 million miles away. So it would technically have fallen within the range of that shadow, uh, that shadow's um, arc. That said, as I said earlier, it would never be the case that the sun would be on the opposite side of the earth casting a shadow on Venus because, well, well we know now because the Ptolemy's world system is incorrect, 
But even according to Dante's reasoning, the sun is right next to Venus, and both of them, or rather, Venus is between Earth and the sun, and so the sun could never, and the Earth, therefore the Earth could never be between both Venus and the sun at the same time. Very interesting, very interesting. In any case, doesn't, that doesn't matter super much. The reason why Dante even mentions this astronomical phenomenon is to mention why there is darkness or obscurity in the first three spheres of heaven. Why is it that it's love marred by lust? Why is it that it is faith marred by inconstancy? Why is it that it is hope marred by ambition? And the idea seems to be that the first three spheres are still, though not technically touched by earth, are slightly touched by the obscuring effect of the shadow of the earth. It's as if we cannot quite see the first three spheres as brightly as we could because of the shadow cast by the perception of earth. And something interesting about this is that the next four spheres we will see much clearer than the first three and that rather than simply seeing vaguely the spirits around us, we will see the shapes in which they find themselves. We will see them represented according to type. We'll see a cross, a ladder, an eagle, and let me think, what is, what is the one I'm missing here? Saturn, uh, ladder, Jupiter, eagle, Mars, cross, IS, and the sun, two, though actually three, interlocking circles. Two interlocking circles and perhaps a third even larger. It will be a symbol of perspective. Very good. All right. Good, 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 good. So let's move forward. And this is an image of a conical shadow being cast. This here, this circle would be the sun. This would, uh, and this would be the earth. And this is the shadow being cast all the way to a point. Just to give those of you who are mathematically inclined an image. All right. This is the real, this is the real stuff here. All right. Let's get to it. How does a sweet seed go bitter? Which I redefine as, how does a good egg go bad? To use a cliche from our day. And how does a person made perfect corrupt himself? We'll go through the first part of this argument today. Then I'm going to explain to you a couple features of the Aristotelian cosmology. And then we'll finish this argument either tomorrow or on Monday. So, two more major slides. The good... God as prima mobile, or first mover, which is an Aristotelian concept from the philosopher Aristotle, like form and matter, moves the heavens by offering itself as final cause slash that which draws all like things to itself the good. If that doesn't make sense, don't worry. We will return to this after I talk about the cosmology. The destiny of a being, a human, for example, exists in the mind of God, which is within, or is, heaven, but also as a consequence, too, provides the well-being or proper path to beings. Simply following the path of uh, Canto 8, lines 91 to 123 here. I'm just laying them out in prose. Otherwise, how could one judge a being if not A, where it is, B, in relation to its goal. D, thus imperfections in the world come not from one's nature, but 
your causes and effects, which are various, lines 122 and 123 with a slight, uh, with a slight uh, changing of the order of the words there. And so what are the various causes and effects of man? Well, they seem to be the causes are the character or choices of man, and the effects seem to be that which are related to the choices based on the specific nature of man. I don't want to get into this too soon because I need to explain this slide, and we need to understand it. So this is the Aristotelian cosmology. This is what the Paradiso is based on and why it is structured in the way it is. Even if you look at this picture over here, you will see exactly what it is we would expect. You see a hell. You see earth. You see purgatory. You see all the spheres in the correct order. You see a couple things you don't know about yet called uh, the sphere of the fixed, the fixed stars. We'll see that soon. That's the constellations. The crystalline sphere with the prima mobile. And then above it all, which is actually the unity of it all, the Empyrean. And so this is very difficult but you need to follow this. Let's begin here. Number one, the prima mobile, that means the first mover in Italian, is God. It's also Latin. All good comes from God and strives back towards it. Okay, okay, I'm following. Thus the planets and stars, the angels or souls, which make up the planets for Dante in his Paradiso. Recall the planets and stars are all made of pure form. That's sort of like pure energy for us. That means they are intangible, immaterial, incorruptible, perfect. The good which is diffused, or excuse me, thus the planets and stars forever circle the good, which is God, or the prima mobile. And in fact, uh, Aristotle suggests this is because a uh, circle is a perfect motion, and thus the perfect beings, stars and planets, perfectly emulate the divine by engaging in a never-ending perfect circular motion. Which, though we now know that the shape of the orbits of planets is elliptical because of the varying uh, gravities that they, because of the differing effects of their gravities on each other, at Dante's time, they thought it was somewhat circular. And in fact, actually, Ptolemy, I think, had by that time understood that the motions of the heaven were not perfectly circular, so that he, uh, he actually postulated the existence of something called, I believe, the, um, the equant. Uh, uh, some, some mathematical phenomenon that would make it so that the circles would be perfect had it not been there. It is something like that. I'll look it up. The ellipsis, I think. Uh, he also talks about, I think, the equant. I'll have to make sure I'm not making up a concept there. In any case, the good which is diffused from the prima mobile is diffused throughout the stars or planets and planets in accordance with their perfection. So this sounds just like what we heard in the moon. Each perfect sphere receives as much perfection as it can from the perfect prima mobile. And then they diffuse their good down to earth. And so... Good starts with God, goes through the planets, and is then rained down onto Earth. Okay, so that's how good gets to Earth, according to Aristotle. This goodness, which then makes it down to Earth, on Earth is composite. It is no longer pure, because the Earth itself is made of matter, and all things on the Earth partake of matter. Everything is made of matter. 
means that everything on earth, even if it receives a perfect form, is what? Imperfect and corruptible. That's right. And so you can begin to see how Dante's argument is going to go. That even if you receive a perfect form from the perfect being, because you are an admixture both of that which is perfect and that which is imperfect, you are a mixture of that which is corruptible and that which is incorruptible. Now you can see how evil or corruption enters the world because it is naturally part of the world for Dante. The reason why there can be evil is A, because there is matter and humans are mixed with matter, and B, because there is matter, humans do not necessarily make the right choice perfectly and all the time like the stars emulating the heavens. They can make their own choices. And thus humans do not have to be perfect. But what is the only other alternative from being perfect? Being imperfect. And that's what our choice is. And that's what Aristotle believed. That's very similar to what Aquinas uh, believed, though, in much more theological language. Somebody might disagree with that. Uh, who listens to this, but this is certainly what Dante is basing his reasons on. So thus humans are made of their incorruptible form given by God. It's trickle-down theonomics, you might say, which also makes them strive towards God because that which partakes of the good wants, or because like, according to Aristotle, which is to be amongst life. So if you are good, you strive towards good like a fire striving towards the heavens. And your form is naturally good, so you naturally do strive towards that unless you decide not to. But they can fail to live up to their destiny precisely because of the corruptibility of matter, their body, and the corruptibility of the will. Which means that once destiny is set, one's soul is good, what can make one bad and we'll lay this out, is A, that one's body degenerates and dies, and that B, one can set one's sights on lower aims than one is meant to, and then pursue them. Sort of like someone who is holding a bow and arrow and shoots the arrow not at the target, but very weakly at something to the other side of it. Hmm. Cast aside. All right, we're going to finish talking about this. I've decided tomorrow.